So I'm Rob. Uh, my wife Lou and I and our family have been here for about 10 years at Grace. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, I love the song that's leading into our, our moment of preaching, and because one of the things we're going to talk about today is one of the chief means by which God intends for His goodness and mercy to to follow us. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I want to start with a low-grade thought experiment. This one's not going to be hard for you to pull off. But imagine that you lived in a world of chaos, doctrinal chaos, moral chaos, familial chaos. See, it's not that hard. You already live in that world. <clears throat> how might you want to go about it? How might we you know, instinctively think about trying to address that situation? Maybe some of us would try to find out whoever the bad guys are out there and drop the hammer on them. Or maybe we could... Uh, place our, our hopes in the next best political candidate to uh, fix things uh, in, in, in a political agenda type of way. Maybe we say, uh, we need to live this place and find somewhere else to live. And, you know, all, all kinds of possible solutions to that. But because we do live in that environment, the passage that we're preaching from in Titus chapter 1 this morning is especially applicable to us. Because God, through the Apostle Paul, is providing his prescription today uh, for shepherding his people in the midst of a world that is filled with chaos. And this is the environment in which we live from the time of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 until the time of Christ's return. We need to be shepherded through chaos, our own disorder, cultural disorder, uh, and, 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 and these sorts of things. So in a nutshell, God's plan is to appoint elders, we can call them under-shepherds, who reflect the character and minister the mercy of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ himself, and shepherd them, right, us, the congregation, the flock, all the way home. That's a great plan. Unpacking that's going to require answering a whole bunch of questions, figuring out a lot of different things, like what is an elder? What are the qualifications for elders? What are qualifications that we shouldn't apply to our elders? There are some of those. You've probably been in churches or encountered uh, congregations where the leadership in the church isn't healthy because they have been guided by the wrong expectations of who the leaders are and what they should do. We need to have the right expectations in mind. How do they lead? How do they uh, overextend themselves or underextend themselves? There's a lot to think through this morning. But before we dive into that, I want to sort of make two initial observations that I think give good context for, for, for preaching this passage. Number one, I'm not an elder, and I'm really glad that this passage fell to me. Now, I, it's providence of God and who was available when and Kenny's, uh, you know, mastery of the, of the calendar and slotting people into the right places. I'm just really glad it fell to me. Now, here, here's why. Um, as I have been preparing for this sermon for several weeks now, I have had moment after moment after moment of reflecting on very particular instances of how I have been grateful for our elders' leadership. Very specific things, specific persons, specific moments. And it's been, it's been, uh, it's been very encouraging to me to have those experiences and, and to see the way that our elders have so, no, nobody's perfect, right? They'd be the first to tell you that they're not perfect, but so well and maturely and wisely balanced the qualifications that are expected of them. But if one of them stands up here and preaches that sermon and says, hey, we're doing a pretty good job, right? That just sounds a little self-congratulatory. Now, I know you already think that about our elders, and so if they said that, that wouldn't bother you at all. But if I say it, right, that's, that's, uh, that's me giving them a pat on the back and you giving them a pat on the back. I think it may just come, a, come across uh, 
neat in that, in that sense. Secondly, more importantly, this passage is going to be a crucial reminder to us of how urgent it is that we as a congregation are faithfully and regularly praying for our elders, for our church leaders, in much the same way that they are regularly committed to spending themselves in prayer on our behalf. Right? We need to return that blessing, and so if we're not already in the habit of doing that, that needs to become a habit. We're going to devote, devote uh, some time and attention to that at the end of our message this morning. Uh, but if you haven't already turned there, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 1. We're in a summer preaching series uh, on the book of Titus. <clears throat> Short little book, one of these pastoral epistles uh, where Paul is giving instruction, pastoral instruction to Titus uh, as he uh, leads the churches on Crete. And we're picking our passage up in verse 5, reading down to verse 9. Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Titus gets his primary task in verse 5. Put what remains into order, particularly by the appointing of elders in every town. The rest of the passage concerns the qualifications and the expectations of these leaders who are to be appointed. And there, the, the three sort of places where I want to camp and, and, and put the most emphasis today is elaborating on uh, three, three questions. The first one is we want to elaborate on why God intends to lead his church through the under-shepherding of these elders. Why elders? Why, why does God want that? What, what creates the need, the occasion for that? Uh, secondly, who are they? Who are they? What, what, what should we expect from them? What do they look like, walk like, talk like? Smell like? How do we recognize a shepherd from a, from a wolf? These, these kinds of things. And then thirdly, even though this passage is most directly about elders, it is written, right, and read uh, to the churches on Crete. And so it's for the sheep as well. So we need to think thirdly, right, first, uh, why, second, who, and third, how should we as sheep respond to our shepherds? How does God want us as sheep to respond to our under-shepherds. So that's the direction that we're, that we're going in uh, this morning. Uh, the first issue is why. A little bit more, elaborate on why God is appointing, uh, through Paul to Titus, elders, in this case, in, in Crete. So when Paul gives this, this comment, right in verse 5, uh, to put things into good order, that's a pretty good indication that's what, that what's going on in Cretan churches at that particular point in time is not according to good order, right? You don't have to say put it in good order if it's already in good order. So there are things that are happening in the churches at Crete that are not in good order. There is a problem that is making this particular instruction necessary. And the problem, it'll get unpacked for us in the next couple of weeks as we make our way uh, through this sermon series. But, but in a nutshell, the problem is that disordered teaching and disordered doctrine have contributed to the disordered living that has furthered its, the expression of the Cretan uh, lifestyle, even now in the churches of Crete. And, and just as a side note, to, to kind of help you pay attention for the remaining uh, sermons in this series, as we make our way through this series, 
in the next few weeks, pay attention to how many times you hear Paul say things like, exhort uh, in sound doctrine and charge certain persons to manifest self-control. Sound doctrine, self-control. The exhortation for those things, which you'll hear quite frequently in this book, are an indication, again, that those things are lacking as an expression of good order. Now, the problem that is manifesting itself, disordered living, on, uh, on Crete, is not just a Cretan issue, right? This is part of the fabric of fallen humanity and fallen culture since the very first attempt at self-direction, at self-ordering, at self-rule in the Garden of Eden. And so the antidote that is prescribed here of shepherds who are putting things into good order is a necessary expression in all Christian communities. It's a necessary expression in our Christian community. It's as directly relevant for Grace, Evangelical Free, and La Mirada in the 21st century as it was for the Cretan churches under the leadership of Titus uh, at the time of the first century. That's one reason, by the way, that Paul says in verse 5 that Titus is to appoint elders in every town. Right? It's, it's not just some of the churches that have this problem and have this need. It's all of them. And we see this as the uh, manifestation of new covenant ministry throughout the, the, the New Testament. The particular means of rectifying this disorder is to appoint elders who personally embrace God's word, who instruct in it, and apply God's order to the people of God. And I'm so thankful that in this, right, through, through the ministry of these under-shepherds, God is extending and continuing the ministry of the good shepherd in a way that loves us enough to oppose our own sometimes deranged attempts at self-order. God doesn't leave us to ourselves. He knows us more accurately than we know ourselves. He knows, for example, that we're sheep, which is not, generally speaking, meant to be a, a compliment. It means we need direction and we need guidance, and absent it, we tend to go, to go astray. And so God loves us enough to oppose our attempts at self-order and self-rule. And I want you to hear the rest of this morning's message in that light. This is, we're, we're focusing on Titus chapter 1, but I want us to hear echoes of John chapter 10 all throughout the exposition of this passage. We are in much greater need of shepherding than we think, and this plan reflects God's great shepherd love for us. Okay, so point number one, why? That's a little bit more on why elders are needed. Uh, the second point, and, and the one we'll spend the most time on, is who? Who are the elders? How do we recognize one? What do, they, what do they look like? What differentiates a true shepherd from a false shepherd, a wolf uh, from, a, from a shepherd leader? If this is God's plan, we have to know what they look like. There are wolves in sheep's clothing, and you'll hear more about that uh, next week. In brief, in order to be an elder in the church of God, we find that elders must have lives that reflect the ordering of God's word in three key categories family life, personal life, and doctrinal life. Those are the three key categories in which the criteria are, are put forward for us. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, but I do want to make a couple of preliminary comments that also address the question of who are the elders. Here's the first one. Every time we read instruction, including our passage this morning, every time in the New Testament we read instruction on the office of elders it's always in plural terminology. So that means that when we're looking for elders, we're looking for more than one. One is not enough. A couple of reasons for that uh, seem, seem pretty plausible. 
one, the task is too big for any single set of human shoulders. And two, since our elders are not only shepherds, but are also themselves still sheep, they need other shepherds looking out for them. They, even as they shepherd, they need to do so in a company of shepherds so that they also can be shepherded. Here's the second <clears throat> sort of uh, preliminary observation. And this is just, it, just to help you read your, your Bibles. So, so in English, there are three words as you read your New Testament that all refer to the same office. Not three different positions, it's one position uh, summarized and described by three different terms. Those terms are elder, uh, overseer, and pastor. Elder, overseer, and pastor. You get a glimpse of this uh, here in Titus chapter 1. Uh, for example, in verse 5, Paul begins his comments by saying that Titus is to appoint elders in every town and saying they need to be above reproach in certain ways. But then in verse 7, he changes his terminology and talks about overseers who must also be above reproach in certain ways. Those aren't two different positions. It's not elders need to have this set of qualifications to be elders, and overseers need to have that set of qualifications to be overseers. It's one office with interchangeable terminology, and the benefit of multiple terms is that it kind of uh, provides to clarification for different aspects of the ministry. So elders reflects that uh, expression of spiritual maturity. Overseers, the exercise of spiritual leadership, and pastors from which we get our English word shepherd, this protective caretaking role uh, of the sheep. Here's the point. When you read your Bibles in search of an answer to the question, who are the elders? Part of the answer to that question is that they're the same people as the pastors and the overseers. They're not different people, okay? And that's why I feel the freedom to use my terminology interchangeably, calling them shepherds, calling them pastors, elders, overseers. I'm going to do, do so throughout the remainder of the sermon. Okay, back to the main point. What qualifications reveal that a man's life has been sufficiently ordered by God's word in such a way that he can be called to serve as a shepherd to others in God's church? Now, please pay attention as we, as we dive into family life, personal life, doctrinal life. Please pay attention first to what is not required. To what is not required. There are many things that you and I may want our elders to do and to be that we do not have biblical grounding to expect from them. You will find nothing here about a certain personality type, level of charisma, upward mobility, entrepreneurial skills, celebrity status. There's all kinds of things that you may wish for your elders to be that we don't have grounding to expect from them. Again, I think some churches are led poorly because they've put people into positions of leadership based on the wrong kind of criteria. I'm thankful that's not the case here at Grace. But just as much as we pay attention to what isn't required, we do need to pay careful attention to what is required. And the standard is very high. Twice, once in verse 6 and once in verse 7, we're told that an elder must be above reproach. This is a big deal, right? This is, this is high stakes kind of stuff. It's not perfection because they are under shepherds, not the good shepherd, but there is an evident and proven maturity that reflects the character of God that needs to be on display in the life of our elders. And again, I'm so thankful for how frequently and routinely we see that manifest to us uh, in the lives of our leaders. 
But family, uh, personal, and, and doctrinal are the areas in which an elder's life must be above reproach. We're going to take those in order. First one being family. In particular, he needs to be above reproach in his marriage relationship and his relationships to his children. Here we get our cues uh, once again from verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I want to comment briefly on each of these relationships and then, and then get to what I think is the main point about the family criterion. Uh, but but, but he's, we're told he must be the husband of one wife. Okay, what does that not mean? One thing it doesn't mean is that a man has to be married in order to be an elder. If that were the case, you would immediately rule out people like Jesus and Paul from the ability to be elders in local churches. So, so if this is something that Jesus and Paul can't do, right, then we're interpreting incorrectly. Uh, What's Paul doing here? He is discussing the most common situation of adult men in his context. The most common situation would be men who are married, men who are also fathers. So the point is that for men who are married, they are what we could call a one-woman kind of man. In other words, this man is ordering his sexual self-control towards one woman in the covenant of marriage. His married life and his sexual expression reflect his own embrace of the order of God in his life. That must be on display before he can steward order into other people's lives. The next phrase in the ESV translation, which I read from, says his children are believers. First, what does that not mean? It does not mean that he must have children. Again, this is the most common scenario in which men, adult men, usually would have been married, usually would have been fathers. But he's not saying you have to have children to be an elder. He is also not addressing the situation of adult children who have moved outside the home and outside the realm of their father's leadership. The term that's being used here is a term for children who are inside the home underneath the father's authority. Now, Based on the way that this passage is translated and and based on the way some people argue, some conclude that the way it's stated means that if his children in the home are not themselves converted, then he should not be an elder. I do not think that is the right interpretation. I do not think that is the best translation. There may be some people here who disagree with me. I read some people Uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks who disagree with me. I don't want to do a whole lot on this, but I want to give a couple of reasons as to why I think it, it would be better understood in a different fashion. Number one, the most faithful father on the planet cannot ensure his child's conversion. Trust me, faithful dads want to do that, but they can't because they're not the Holy Spirit. Faithful fathers pray plead, appeal, role model, exhort, encourage. But the new birth is a job that is given to the Holy Spirit uniquely. Number two, the rest of verse six says, describing the children, that they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now that definitely sounds like language where a father is using his influence to restrain brazen behavior But I don't think it's necessarily conversion language or language that's reflective of a child who has been converted. Number three, the term that the ESV translates believing here or believers here can also be rendered faithful. And if that's the right way to go, 
then what this would be saying is not that his children have accepted the gospel personally speaking necessarily, but they behave in a manner that can ordinarily be seen as faithful to a father's guidance. And the reason I think that's a better interpretation here is because of how the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3 talks about an overseer's relationship to his children. You should read 1 Timothy 3 later on today, this evening. It's a, it's a, it's a very important parallel passage for thinking about the office of elder. In 1 Timothy 3, 4, the instruction concerning children is that he keeps his children submissive, which is not conversion language, Right? But it is reflecting their faithfulness or submission to his leadership as a rule of thumb. You can spend a ton of time sorting through those issues. And if you want some resources, I'm happy to give some to you after the sermon and you can think through those. What's the main point? What's the main point of saying that his family life is a criterion for being above reproach if he's going to serve as an elder in the context of the local church? Here's the main point. Men who are husbands and fathers must have proven orderliness in what I like to call their little f families of flesh before they can be called on to lead and provide order in God's capital F family of faith. There is a link in structure between these two expressions of family, the little flock, the big flock, the family of flesh, the family of faith. This is why Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy 3.5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? There must be provenness in the one before there can be an exercise of leadership in the order. By the way, this helps account for why this role of elder is reserved for otherwise qualified men. Now hear me carefully when I say that. Otherwise qualified men. That doesn't mean that all men are qualified. Most men aren't. Most men are not elders. Uh, it does mean that there are very important other qualifications to pay attention to, and we're going to give consideration to some of those. But <clears throat> spiritual leadership by God is entrusted to men, husbands, fathers, in the little family of flesh, and also, by parallel structure, in the family of faith. These are similar entities, these two forms of family. And so similar structures of leadership are called on or called for in both cases. Now, there is a danger here that Paul alerts us to uh, when he requires that elders in the church be faithful pastors at home in the first place. What he's prohibiting is a dichotomy between one's public role and one's personal life. That is so dangerous when that encroaches for all of us, not just for shepherds, for sheep as well, to have a growing gap between one's public persona and one's private life. This is something that elders need to be on the alert for. It's something that we as a congregation need to be vigilant in prayer about on behalf of our sheep. The danger is in coming to see ministry as a role to be performed while I'm on the clock. It's a, it's a danger if life and ministry become dichotomized like that, if ministry is a job to do while I'm at work. If that happens, and my ministry, or an elder's ministry, is not fueled as an expression of a heart increasingly given with satisfaction to God's word, then it's just a matter of time before the foundations erode and lives collapse. Which is why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, not only that he needs to watch his doctrine, but also that he needs to watch his life. Watch your life and doctrine, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 6. 
Again, this is a danger for all of us to pay attention to, but especially for elders because of how much weight of ministerial leadership is laden on their shoulders. The foundations have to be solid in order to sustain that weight. So family qualifications. Secondly, personal qualifications. Here we get our guidance from verses 7 and 8. Read that again. An overseer is God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. First thing we see in verse 7 is that his role of leadership is the kind of leadership that a steward exercises. He's called a steward, which means that an elder leads as one whose authority is not intrinsic, but delegated to him from God. He understands he's a promoter of God's order and God's agenda, not my order and my agenda. And so he's willing to spend himself on behalf of the sheep rather than consuming the sheep to feed himself. That's what wolves do, not shepherds. And the stewardship of God's flock must be reflected in his embrace of God's rule in his own life. So in addition to the marriage and family qualifications, there's a list of vices to be avoided here, virtues to be embraced here. And here's what they particularly express, right? They particularly express that an elder has submitted to God's order in the areas of money, alcohol, and self, excuse me, money, alcohol, and the exercise of authority. Money, alcohol, and the exercise of authority. It's not surprising that those three areas get singled out, right? Those can be precarious pitfalls. The use of money, the use of alcohol, and the exercise of self-control can be precarious pitfalls for people whose lives are not under the governance and the direction of the good shepherd. People make all kinds of mistakes there. And so, His self-ordering according to God's word needs to be manifest in obvious ways, right, in his own life before he can be a steward of that order in the lives of others. Family, personal. Thirdly, to be an elder, his life must be above reproach, doctrinally speaking, in terms of biblical authority. And here, our emphasis is found in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, the first two headings, family and personal, tell us uh, the characteristics that mark his life. This one tells us what elders are chiefly expected to do. What's their job? What's their role? What's 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 their job description? And according to Paul here, their primary task is to lead the church through the affirmation of and instruction in sound doctrine which is one really fantastic reason why grace is committed to expositional preaching. As Randy mentioned in a sermon a couple of weeks back, all of us, even the preacher, right, stands underneath the authority of the word. The, the, The authority in the pulpit is not the preacher. The preacher is a steward of the authority, which is the word of God. So we're all accountable to that. We're all correctable by that. Leadership in the, in, the, in the family of God is not executed on the basis of a cult of personality. It is a stewardship of the teaching of God's word. Given the weight of this task, right, affirming and instructing in sound doctrine, We as a congregation, and I think we do a good job with this, but we as a congregation need to be a people who embrace this priority for them. We need to be careful that we do not over-expect from them or wrongly expect from them. We need to allow space for this to be their priority. Yes, there are other ministries in the church that need to be done. 
but God does not ask elders to do them all. In Ephesians 4.12, here's our hat tip to the youth group, right? Ephesians 4.12 indicates that these men are charged with leading and equipping us to do the work of the ministry, right? They have a role, leading, equipping, guiding, but we partner with them in doing the work of the ministry. It's, the ministry is not their job, you know, and us kind of, kind of observing and cheering them on. We partner with them in ministry under their leadership. Now, here's another thing to notice when it comes to the criteria about doctrine and teaching. Paul requires that they rightly divide the word of truth, but before he requires that, he also requires that they are personally opening their lives regularly to be rightly divided by the word of truth. Did you see that? He says, he does say they've got to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict, but before he says that, he holds out the requirement that elders themselves must personally hold firm to the trustworthy word. So yes, we do need to be wary of those who do not instruct in sound doctrine. But here's what else we need to be watchful for and prayerful about, particularly on behalf of our elders. We, We need to be watchful for those whose lives are given to the ministry of God's word to other peoples, to other people, in in ways that maybe because of the accumulation of busyness and weight of responsibility can cause them at times to drift from holding that same word close to their own hearts. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to have a professionalized relationship to the word of God, to be professionally responsible for applying it to other people and not holding it close to one's own heart. This is what uh, kind of the danger that Paul Tripp calls in his his book, Dangerous Calling. He calls it the danger of big theological brains and heart disease. Big theological brains and heart disease. Now, I, I think every seminarian should read that book. Here's what he's talking about. He's not saying what we really need is tiny brains. He's not saying that. What he is saying is that the love of studying the text of Scripture The love of studying even good theology, those are good things, right? Necessary things. They're not exactly or necessarily the same thing as the warm-hearted love of God himself. In other words, I can become intellectually stimulated by a text that has become not much more than an object of scrutiny to me. I'm on thin ice. If I'm there, I'm on really thin ice. This is a text But it is much more than just a text, isn't it? It's a message from our shepherd savior inviting us to follow him, trust him, walk with him. And if it gets reduced to intellectual curiosity, and my heart is not warmed by the God of the scriptures and the God of good theology, then I'm in a very dangerous place. And again, it's something because our our, our shepherds are regularly, routinely, faithfully ministering the word of God to us, we need to be prayerful that they would be ministering it to their own hearts as well. Here's another pitfall to watch out for. Uh, The danger of what we could call over-shepherding on the one hand and under-shepherding on the other. Over-shepherding on the one hand under-shepherding on the other. Here's what an under-shepherd looks like. An under-shepherd is not willing to steward God's order for the welfare of the sheep. 
too hard, too time-consuming, whatever the case may be. They never rebuke when rebuke is called for. They do not bind consciences according to Scripture, where Scripture binds consciences. They don't go to battle for the sheep. They don't pursue straying sheep. For whatever reason, they don't care enough to be spent on behalf of the sheep. That's under-shepherding. Over-shepherding. person who is an over-shepherd drifts from the role of being a steward into the role of trying to be the Lord. Over-shepherds are heavy-handed, harsh. Maybe the only tone they express is rebuke or demand. They perhaps act as though the authority that they are given is intrinsic to them, and they do bind the conscience in places where Scripture does not bind the conscience. In between this error and that error is the ministry of shepherding as servant leadership after the pattern of the good shepherd himself. This person, this is one of the things I've been so thankful for, for our elders in the lives of grace. Walking that line can be difficult at times, and I see them so faithfully and routinely doing it, but this person serves deeply, spins at cost to himself, battles on behalf of the sheep. Calvin put it this way, talking about this passage. He said, elders need two voices, one for gathering the sheep, the other for driving away the wolves. I like that. That's a good way of putting it, right? There's more than one mode of the expression of this ministry. Both are needed, but it also calls for the wisdom of God to know when to apply which voice. That's that's good pastoral counsel. Why do we need elders? Who are the elders? Thirdly, and, and, and directly to us now as a congregation, how can we as sheep care for and bless our elders? I want to suggest five ways. This will be relatively brief, and, and then it's going to lead us to a time of prayer for them. Five ways that we can, in light of this message, be a blessing to them. Number one, uh, we can bless our shepherds by following with discernment, following with discernment. Again, this letter is read to the churches on Crete. So while it describes elders, it's describing them to sheep, helping them know the difference between true and false, to recognize the voice of the good shepherd through the ministry of the under-shepherds. When a sheep comes under the sway of false teaching, that burdens and grieves a shepherd's heart. That grieves a pastor's heart. But when the shepherds see us as sheep grow strong in loving good teaching and sound doctrine and turning away from the sway of false teaching, that's a blessing to them. They're encouraged as they see us grow in the pursuit of the truth with discernment. Number two, we can bless our shepherds by following them well. Now here's how I'm distinguishing this from the previous point. One danger is to be undiscerning. This danger is to be unleadable. We don't want to be unleadable sheep. We don't want to be sheep who are unteachable when, in fact, we have true shepherds, right? That's not a blessing to them. That's a burden. That's a grievance to them when we're unleadable, unteachable. There's so many things we could do here, but but, but here's, here's one question to consider. Have you joined a church where there are trustworthy shepherds who lead well? I know a lot of you have, and some people may be in transition from one church to another, But if we haven't joined a church where there are identifiable shepherds, we can't obey Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy 
and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If I don't have identifiable shepherds in my family of faith, I can't do that. And, and not only am I supposed to do that, but I'm supposed to do that in such a way that causes joy and not groaning for the elders who are charged with leading me. Here's a great question I learned from uh, Donna Tanis a number of years ago that she asked from time to time, I assume still does, in her relationship to Eric. It's a great sheep reflection question. The question is this, am I a joy to lead? That's really insightful, isn't it? So, we, right? so Eric, Donna, and, Donna asked that of Eric from time to time. We should be thinking of that in our own minds as sheep. Am, am I a joy for my shepherds to lead? Am I pr- more prone to grumble, complain? Am I quick to pray for them? Am I unleadable, unteachable? Number three, we can bless our elders by imitating their faith. We can bless them by imitating their faith. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It is true that most of us are not elders, but all believers are ministers. That's one of the primary ministry values at Grace. The qualities that we've discussed must be embraced by elders, but they also portray Christian maturity in general and something that we should all aim at. Again, as we grow into these qualities of Christian maturity, that brings joy and delight and blessing to our shepherds. Fourth, we can bless them by protecting space for them to avoid some of the pitfalls that can be part of the path of shepherding ministry. Here I'm thinking of two in particular. We need to, we need, we need to cultivate space for them to shepherd their own families. Now, remember in their case, they're responsible for shepherding two families. Family of flesh, family of faith. It it can be demanding to shepherd one, but they've been charged with shepherding two. And so we need to create space, right? We we, we, We don't want to cannibalize all of their shepherding ministry in a way that their families get none of that. So things like protecting uh, nights in the, in, in the home, vacation time, days off, respecting those boundaries, right? allowing them room to be the shepherd in that context so that they're resourced and equipped to be the shepherds in this context when the time calls for it. Number two, creating space or preserving space, praying for space in their hearts to cling to the word personally themselves. I do think that's one of the blessings, one of the benefits of a shared pulpit at a place like Grace. Our elders Get to, this, is, this is unusual in, in, in a wonderful way. Our elders get to come to their own congregation sometimes and receive and be fed. For most pastors, I don't, I don't know how 52 Sunday-a-week preachers do it, honestly, but most pastors, the only time they ever hear somebody else preach is when they're listening to a podcast or they're on vacation somewhere. So, so that's one of the things that I'm, that I'm thankful for. In the final analysis, it can be a joy mixed with difficulty at times to be a pastor. Eldership is high-stakes ministry. Our pastors, we've said, are not just shepherds. They're also sheep. They wrestle with their own fickle hearts sometimes. They have disappointments in ministry, in life, in work, relationships. Good pastors, like ours, their minds and hearts don't easily shut off. That means even though they do take days off and go on vacation, oftentimes when they do, your burdens and mine are in the back of their minds, along with the agenda for the next meeting they're supposed to lead and sermon they're supposed to prepare. It's a lot of weight on their shoulders. We need to help shoulder some of those burdens and fight for the integrity of their hearts. And the way that I want to do that in particular with the rest of the time we have left today is through prayer.
We have seen God's plan to shepherd us through the ministry of elders. We've seen all that's required of them and some of the dangers that attend those responsibilities. We know that our elders at Grace regularly and faithfully pray for us. So I want to spend some time doing that for them now. I hope this is a regular habit for you, but if it's not, I also hope that what we do in the next five to seven minutes trickles over into your family life and into your grace groups and becomes part of the rhythm of how you pray uh, for your leaders at Grace. So here's what I'd like to do. If you are currently or ever have been an elder at Grace, please stand up just for a moment. I'm not gonna make you move or go anywhere. Just stand for a second so people can, can see you. Okay, they're all around the room here. All right, see them? Okay, you guys can sit down. Here's what we're gonna do. Um, in a moment, we're gonna put a slide on the screen with some prompts to use in prayer for the elders. You've seen the ones that are seated nearby you, okay? When we go to prayer, I'm, I'm asking those of you who are seated near to an elder to scooch in, right? Huddle around them, extend a hand to the elder, to the elder's family, and three or four of you pray over that elder with regard to some of the things we've talked about in this message and some of the prompts that'll be on the screen. For the rest of you, which will be most of you who aren't near an elder, that's fine. Huddle up with two or three people who are in your row. You don't have to go far. Same thing, you can pray for our elders with the prompts that are on the screen. If you don't know them by name, on the back of your bulletin, all of their names are listed, but at a minimum, this will help you get to know uh, at least one of them. We can serve them in this way, and again, hopefully it continues into the afternoon, grace groups, weeks and months ahead. Here's some prompts. You don't have to use these. Uh, they, they reflect some of the things that we've talked about. When we're done, I'll close us in prayer. Kenny will lead us in the conclusion to worship. And then at that point, the uh, prayer team will be up front, as Lisa said, to pray with you if you have needs or questions about what it means to be shepherded well. Okay, so go ahead, huddle up, scooch together, put out a hand. Three or four of you take initiative to pray. And uh, we'll, we'll bring it to a conclusion here in just a moment. Um, let's close in, in prayer, and then Kenny will, will lead us in the conclusion of our worship. Father, we are so thankful, uh, not only that you have, in general, established a plan to lead your sheep through the appointment of elders who reflect the character of the Good Shepherd, but that you have done that in particular here at Grace, Evie Free, in La Mirada. Uh, for, for many men and many years of, of faithful ministry, steadfastness, um, burdens we, uh, as the congregation, haven't known they've bared, uh, borne, some that we have known. Or would you strengthen them? Would you bless them, Lord? Would you enable them to experience refreshment in their relationship uh, with families, Lord, to shepherd two families well? Would you encourage them? Would you help them to hold the word close to their own hearts? They're in places where there might be, be uh, developing cracks in any foundations, Lord, to pay that you would repair, repair those breaches strengthen them, help them to ward off the attacks of the evil one, uh, not only in, in uh, the lives of the congregation, but in their own lives. Lord, pray that they would point through their ministry to the glory of the great shepherd, and that through uh, maybe a, a, just a renewed commitment on, on the part of many in the congregation to lift up the elders in prayer, that you would be pleased to do uh, far more than we could ask or imagine uh, through the ministries of grace in the days ahead. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.